and let people like Franklin Grant go out and do the evangelism and bring people to Christ. We let people, um, you know, like William Lane Craig or Robin Zacharias go out and they take care of the apologetic end of things. And we just say, well, we'll pray for them. We have to be willing to enter into the fire ourselves. first and foremost call us to be lights in this world, to bring righteousness into all the areas which you've allowed us to. And some of these are just too great for us now, so we are calling on you. Calling on you to heal. We're calling on you to strengthen. We're calling on you to act. So Lord, as we think of Amanda and we think of this possibility of breast cancer, it is a fearful thing. There have been so many now that we have known, held dear to us, that have struggled with this. So we ask for relief. We ask for strength. We ask for wisdom for the doctors. And we ask for healing in this area. Lord, with the value of life continuing in our society to be denigrated, it's very difficult on mornings like this as we consider senseless killings senseless shootings, senseless massacres. So Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom over our leaders. We need strength as a nation. And Lord, we need you to draw us together. For so many years now, events like this have drawn our nation together and they seem only now to further fracture the divisions that are already here. So Lord, would you please just help us to be a united front. Would you help your Christians to shine as a light on a in these times? Lord, we ask for comfort for the families of these victims. We ask for swift justice that only you can bring, that only you can deliver. We ask for strength and the possibility of answers. Lord, we think of Cecilia and her vertigo and just ask you, please minister to her this very hour. You would give her strength and you would take this from her. Lord, we think of Josiah. We ask you please be with him as uh, he is now in Camp Olis and uh, he's, he still has a little bit of time ahead of him. Give him strength. Renew him each day. Help him to, uh, to be a light there where he is. And would you protect him? And Lord, for our military that fights for our freedoms every single day, Josiah being just one part of that, Lord, would you please protect them all? As they seek to defend our Constitution, defend our freedom, would you please give them strength? Would you please uh, be the wind beneath their wings as they go forward? And Lord, we just ask for justice to be carried out in the far lands where we have placed our troops. We ask for your hedge of protection around them this morning. And Lord, as we enter into the study of your word now, we ask for your spirit to be upon us. We ask that we might understand with greater clarity than we have in times past. And that you might renew us. That you might build us strong. And we thank you for this. In Christ's precious name, all God's people said, Amen. So if you haven't found Jude yet, second to last book in the Bible. Um, I taught out of the book of Jude a few years ago in prison. And um, I actually was uh, going to a different church then. And the pastor said, so what are you teaching out of um, now in the prison? And I said, the book of Jude. And he said, oh, you picked the most difficult book you could possibly pick. And he asked me, what do you hope to accomplish by this? What do you hope to accomplish by this? 
and he struck me right in the stomach. Because I was just teaching God's word. I really didn't know what was going to be accomplished by it. I just knew that where God's word goes out, it does not return to him void. But the more I thought on these things, and the more I studied the book of Jude, the more I saw how contemporary these issues are for those both inside and outside the federal penitentiary. This is for us today. So some things I said last week, I am going to repeat, uh, because uh, they are true, because they are necessary. The book of Jude is about war. It's about us going to combat as Christians. It's about us fighting every single day on the front line, not the sideline. It's about us engaging culture. It's about us caring enough about those around us who are perishing to do true evangelism and to do true apologetics. These are our weapons of combat as we go out into the world. We're not talking about the evangelism where we sit down and get someone to pray a prayer and then they go and live their lives. We're talking about what Jesus called us to do. He said, make disciples. That's what we want to do. So we don't want to bring someone to the edge of the water and think they're safe and leave them there. We want to get them out of the water. We want to get them to safety and we want to lead them on their way. This is what we're called to do. But to do that, we have to go into some dark places. And our culture is growing darker and darker every single day. The pictures of the flames here, this is the picture that we're given in the book of Jude. We actually have to enter into the fire to save some people. And as I said last week, this means burning, melting flesh. It means stink of smoke. It means you are not going to walk away unscathed, which is why evangelism happens, um, or barely happens today, and why apologetics is left to the experts. So we let people like Ray Comfort go out and do the evangelism for us and bring people to Christ. We let people like Franklin Graham go out and do the evangelism and bring people to Christ. We let people um, you know, like William Lane Craig or Robbie Zacharias go out and they take care of the apologetic end of things. And we just say, well, well, we'll pray for them. We have to be willing to enter into the fire ourselves. We have to be willing to go in and to come out all scathed and burned knowing that we helped someone get out of that place. That place of darkness, that place of torment. And this is coming upon us today. We're not safe from it. We can't hide from it. There's no way that we can bury our head in the sand. The church has done that for too long. We've been too complacent. So let's read these two verses together. We're going to Jude verses 4. And five, it says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there. It was on to say this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I know every single person in here remembers this crew. Give me an amen. You guys remember this? 1986. Just getting rid of whatever. I thought I was going to get rid of this light. There we go. 1986. This was actually just shortly after the Chernobyl disaster. It left everyone wondering. So January 28, 1986, the NASA Shuttle Orbiter undertaking mission STS-51L 
and the 10th flight of the Space Shuttle Challenger broke apart 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members. Five NASA astronauts, one payload specialist, and a civilian school teacher. The spacecraft disintegrated over the Atlantic Ocean off the coast, <clears throat> excuse me, off the coast of Cape Canaveral, Florida. That's what it looked like, in case you don't remember. I know it was a long time ago now. The disintegration of the vehicle began after a joint in its right solid rocket booster, the SRB, failed at liftoff. Who was the failure caused by? By an O-ring. By an O-ring. Possibly one of the cheapest parts on the entire vessel. One little thing caused disaster. The failure was caused by the failure of an O-ring that seals used in the joint that were not designated to handle the unusually cold conditions that existed at this launch. The seal's failure caused a breach in the SRB joint, allowing pressurized burning gas from the solid rocket motor to reach the outside and impinge upon the adjacent SRB, AFT, field joint attachment hardware and external fuel tank. This led to a separation on the right hand SRB's AFT field joint attachment and the structural failure of the external tank. Aerodynamics, excuse me, aerodynamic forces broke up the orbiter. The crew compartment and many of the other vehicle fragments were eventually recovered from the ocean floor after a lengthy search and recovery operation. The exact timing of the death of the crew is unknown. Several crew members are known to have survived the initial breakup of the spacecraft. The shuttle had no escape system and the impact of the crew compartment at terminal velocity with the ocean surface was too violent to be survivable. Real simple. Something that most people would not even have thought of. You know, we drink a lot of these. A lot of these. Put your hand up if you have these in your fridge. Maybe not this size. You got water bottles in your fridge? You got water bottles. We drink a lot of these. Billions of them every year, as a matter of fact. I remember when I was in Haiti, uh, they had the little plastic pouches full of purified water. You break it open and drink it. It actually isn't a new invention. In the mid-1600s, bottled water was sold all over the place, but it was glass bottles. And it was safe water from a safe spring for you to drink. It was actually much, much healthier than going to the municipal well or even having water brought into your house. And in 1903, a doctor found out that we could chlorinate water and that it would be safe for us to drink. So the bottled water kind of went away for a while until the mid-70s. It kind of made its comeback when they had the plastic bottles. And then in the mid-2000s, they found a way to shrink the plastic of the outside of the bottle to make it thinner, making it more environmentally friendly. And uh, now we all have lots of drinking water in our fridge in these bottles. But let me ask everyone a question this morning. You know the process this has to go through? The treatment, the filtration, it has to be cleansed, it has to be treated with chemicals, minerals have to be added to it so that it tastes good to us. It goes through a long process of filtration and additives and testing before it ever even makes it into a bottle. 
And it comes to us not only in the convenience of a bottle, we usually buy it by the case. Amen? We have all these cases of clean water. Now suppose you bought a case of water from a certain company, and they released a statement stating that one of their facilities experienced a problem in processing. And a dead rodent was found in the process. The statement released says that they are confident that the discovery should not have adverse effects on your health. Would you drink the water? All God's people said, no, no. You don't allow something that might hurt you or your loved ones to sit in the refrigerator. Now, it doesn't matter whether or not it was a mouse, whether or not maybe it was a large cockroach. We don't really care what it was that fell in the water. If you were told something died and fell in the treatment process, but you should be okay, everyone here is throwing away that case of water when you get home. Amen? No one's drinking it. But what if you already drank some of the water? Now you have an entirely different question altogether. What can happen to me? What should I look for? And most of all, usually for most of us, how did this go unnoticed? How is it this huge multi-million dollar facility that bottles all this water had a mouse fall into the vat and didn't see this? Aren't there cameras? Aren't there three ships? Aren't there people looking for this sort of thing? But a part of the process went unnoticed. And something crept in. And this is exactly what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the O-ring. It wasn't thought of. The failure that crept in. We're looking at the bacteria that fell in the water, bo the water bottle and the vat and made it so that it's no longer safe for us to drink. It's something simple, it's something silent, and it's something that creeps in. This morning we're going to talk about where war begins. So last week we looked at our call to arms. We looked at uh, the need for us to wake up and go to war. This morning we're going to look at where the war actually physically begins. And for most Christians, I know I believed this for a long time, we believe that it begins out somewhere in some third world country or some, uh, some land where uh, the gospel has not yet been preached and where maybe there's some medicine doctors out there teaching someone false doctrine. That's the place where the war starts. But it isn't. We always think that it's elsewhere and the best thing we could do is send financial help to those who are on the front line that isn't where it starts it starts with something beautiful and pure like water and it gets polluted it gets contaminated and the point is contamination is almost always subtle and slips unnoticed and that's the beginning of the battle for our souls where evangelism and apologetics must strike first it is why we are pleased to contend with what's in front of us. So we think that uh, big-named atheists are the ones that we have to go after. We think like Richard Dawkins, that's the guy that's changing everyone's minds. Uh, we think that the late Christopher Hitchens was the guy that was changing everyone's minds. Or, or Mr. Dennett, we think that we need to go after these people and send them an email. Get a hold of them in some way. Maybe send an email to the Freedom From Religion Association. That's not what the Bible tells us, though. The Bible tells us that there are enemies at war for your and my soul, first. And second, that it usually creeps in subtly. So this point I made last week, I just want to reiterate this one more time. 
Christianity is not passive. We don't sit by and do our Sunday thing and then turn over and do our Monday thing. Christianity is something that happens every single moment of every single Christian life. It should. It's something we take out of this place and we practice everywhere we go. Everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. Amen? So this morning we're going to look at who the enemies are. Who the enemies are that are in the camp, what they do, and what it will ultimately lead to. But we need to remember that the book of Jude is about war. So it's this tiny little book hidden back by that book of Revelation, which people avoid because we don't understand as well as we wish we should. So we kind of leave that off by itself. But it's a war book. It tells us how to go out and fight. And once again, a point I made last week, I want to make one more time. Your evangelism will follow your Christianity. Your apologetics will follow your Christianity. If your Christianity is passive, so will be your evangelism. If your Christianity is passive, so will be your apologetic. If your Christianity is passive, so will be your method of discipling other people. It will be passive. But that's not what we're told to do in the book of Jude. We've got to enter the fire. We have to go in and enter the fire. So the question is, who are the enemies? What do they do? And what will be their end? Who are the enemies? What do they do? And what will be their end? It says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Who are the enemies? Notice first, there's certain people. They're particular people. This is a, a people that is in the house. Certain people. Notice secondly, who crept in unnoticed. It's like the bacteria. Crept in unnoticed. People weren't looking. People weren't waiting. People weren't on guard. People weren't uh, paying attention to this. They came in unnoticed. And notice thirdly, they're ungodly. They're ungodly. So when we're talking about enemies in the camp, we're saying, okay, so this is the place where we're preparing to go to war this morning. Here in this building, you're surrounded by fellow soldiers in the army of Christ, and we're preparing to go to war. And there are enemies in the camp. And you're looking around, you're going to tap on someone's shoulder and be like, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? It's not always exactly that way. There are certain people, certain ideologies, and they creep in unnoticed. It seems like they're just coming in and they're just being loving brothers and sisters, and they just want to serve, and they just want to help, and they just want to do all of these things that will be helpful for the church. But as it turns out, they are also ungodly. So second point, what do the enemies do? And this is the most important what do the enemies do? Notice first, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So these are the people that say, well, you can't be that hard with the Bible all the time. Uh, yes, the Bible says this, but we don't really live in that time anymore. Things are a little bit different now than they used to be. Well, yes, we should be doing this, but mm, 
you know, uh, that's not really the way our culture lives now. You'll be seen as strange by everyone. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. These are the ones that say, oh, but we're covered by grace. That God of the Old Testament, the, the, to the left side of the book, the mean one, he's been made happy now by the God in the right side of the book. Now we live in grace and no longer under wrath. That whole Old Testament is, is gone and done with. We don't have to worry about that guy anymore. Jesus has made everything better. He's put a band-aid on the rift between us and God. Now we live in the age of grace. See, what they do is they say, well, now that you have this grace, you don't really have to live the law to the letter. You don't really have to obey what Christ says. You can live as you want to because you're under grace. Do what feels right to you. Whatever feels right, that is the modern ethic. Sad and scary about that, that's the ethic we live in today. If it feels right and two consenting parties say it's okay, do it. As gruesome as this is, a few years ago, there was a man in Germany who put an ad out on the internet looking for someone to kill and eat. Yes, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill someone and eat them. He had a full ad there and said that they had to be in good shape, preferably vegetarian, non-smoking, and he wanted to destroy this person and eat them. Ten people responded. Ten people responded. He chose one. And he ended that man and ate him. And the question is, what did he do wrong? Two consenting parties took part in this. He didn't go against the man's will. He went with the man's will. What did he do wrong? Well, the modern ethics says if it feels good, do it. If it feels right, do it. And I know that that's gruesome, and that's the, the world that we live in today. There are people that do strange, disgusting things like this, but the new ethic is not God says. The new ethic is, I feel. And listen for this as you're speaking to people today. Well, I feel like that's not all that wrong. I had a conversation two weeks ago about the goodness factor with a guy who is always telling me how good he is. I'm a good person. 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 Well, he's not a really all that good of a person. I said, where do people get this idea that they can just toss around this idea of goodness? Where does this come from? Where did this argument, where did this conversation come from? How is it that you can say, uh, good, 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 I'm good, good, good. Where does it come from? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, it always seems to be something people are relying on. Well, they're not a good person, but I am a good person. I said, what is the standard? And he says, well, do you think I'm a good person? And I said, what is the standard? And he said, well, I haven't killed anyone. And I said, well, there are people who have not killed anyone and have done horrible, awful, terrible things. Are they bad people? Well, yes, they are. But you just said the standard is you haven't killed anyone. So what is the standard for goodness then? Who sets it? Then the classic answer came to me. Well, I just feel like, oh, okay. You act on your feelings. When we act on our feelings, rash and stupid decisions come about. Amen? How many people in here have done something stupid on feelings? Put up a hand. Yeah, I got both up. I felt it was the right thing to do at the time. I felt like this was the job that God wanted me to have. 
And then you get there and you're miserable and be like, well, that's not the job that God wanted me to have. I thought you felt that was what God was leading you to. What's the standard? Where does this come from? See, this is this new ethic. And it's crept into the church. It's not just this man in Germany. It's people that are saying, well, if it feels right, the Lord must be blessing it. You have grace on your side. This is not the way we're called to live. This is a teaching that is bacteria in pure water. And it's destroying people. And so many churches have folded because of ideas like this. Men and women that come in and they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They say, if it feels right, it's okay. You have grace on your side. But that's not all they do. This is scarier yet, but it doesn't seem like it's all that big of a deal. They deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. What they say is this. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I have believed. I have embraced Christ by faith for the forgiveness of my sins. Then why are you doing this? Because I've embraced Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. You're saying he's your Savior, but he's not your Lord. Why is it that you're willing to give up your eternity to him, but the rest of this life you're not? Say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best to just live the best life I can to be a good person. I make sure I give in the collection plate. I'm making sure I do all these good things. What they're actually doing is denying him as Lord. Get the master of my life. No, I'm the master of my life. I'm the one that makes the decisions because I feel like it's the right thing to do. So these enemies are people who creep in, they're unnoticed, and they come in and they start distorting the teachings of the church. Well, we live in a new time today. You should be able to decide what is right and what is wrong because of experience. We really don't need this dusty old book anymore. And so they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What will be their end? Now, I, I intentionally am glossing over part of the verse, and uh, I'll just read that to everyone. It says this. <clears throat> excuse me. Those designated for this condemnation, because we're going to get to that next time. Uh, so I, I want to have some continuity here, so we'll come back to that next time. So we're just sticking with these enemies right now and looking at the short term. So what's going to be their end? What's going to happen to these people? Well, we're given a warning in this passage. A warning for us to remember. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved our people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. This is an amazing and beautiful passage of Scripture. Because Christ was... He who led them out. The pillar that was with them was Christ. The water that they drank, the rock from which they drank was Christ. We're told this in the New Testament. He was there. He led them out safely. And later on, they failed to believe. They failed to believe. And they were destroyed there, never taking hold of the promise. Never setting foot in that place. 
Their end is they will be destroyed. They will be destroyed. For some of us, it's hard to stomach because we're like, well, that doesn't seem very graceful. These are the people that are going out and trying to pervert the grace of our Lord. They're trying to deny him, teaching us to do the same. These people will be plucked out. These people will be cast aside, and rightly so. Why? Why should they? Because they are damaging the church of Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. They didn't have faith enough in God to rely upon him. So they made this false god to worship. So they grumbled against him out in the wilderness. You're not going to take care of me? They proved again and again their disbelief. And they didn't make it into the promised land. They didn't. So what will be their end? They'll be destroyed. Last question. What do we do? We have a lot of stuff in front of us now. We have the fact that there are people that are creeping in the church and poisoning everyone there. And the church has done a lot to just stand by on the sideline, not be active, not engage, not do anything to pull them out. And the question is, what do we do? Protect the gospel first in your heart. Protect the gospel first in your heart. This message was not meant to be a message to give you a golden ticket to get into heaven. This is not Willy Wonka. This message is supposed to touch every single aspect of our lives. Every aspect. That means when I go out into public, this needs to be on my tongue, it needs to be on my mind, it needs to be before my eyes. How am I behaving? What am I saying? What am I doing? What is in my heart? As Christ says, what's in our heart is going to come out. So we need to protect the gospel first in your heart. And secondly, declare our only Lord and Master. Now what are the ungodly, what are those who are creeping in, what are they doing with our only Lord and Master? They are denying our only Lord and Master. But what are we to do? To declare him. To declare him. Take him in to the places where we go. And everyone thinks that all of a sudden this is going to mean, oh, well, now I'm going to be this weird religious guy that goes and talks about Jesus everywhere. Oh, now I'm going to be the religious woman that goes to the office and I'm talking about Jesus everywhere. It's because we don't know how to do apologetics. Because we don't know how to fight. Because we think that fighting means you go in and you have a gigantic cross necklace on and say, look at me, or you have the gigantic cross earrings, or you have the t-shirt that says, Jesus is homeboy. Look at me. Look at me. And that's not the way we do apologetics. It's not the way we do evangelism. It means we're actually taking the functional gospel into the places where it needs to be. It means this gospel that we believe is the power to save actually needs to be taken in to the business world. It actually has to be taken into the educational world. It actually has to be taken 
political world. It has to be taken into our household. It needs to be thought on, preached on, taught on, figured out. Every aspect of our life needs to be guided by this one message. That I am a failure and a wretch as a human being, but Christ came to redeem me from that. That at one time we were good and we made a bad choice and we suffered a fall by our own choice. And all of humanity bears that and Christ is redeeming it. So when you hear about things this morning, this shooting, we say, oh, what can be done? Christ is going to redeem that. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it with all my heart because the gospel is going forward and the gospel is going to win. And terrorists are not going to win. And bad people with crazy behavior are not going to win. Christ is going to win. The gospel needs to be taken to this area, which is why we need to be in prison preaching. Because these people are doing horrible, terrible acts. And then they're going in and being left. They need to be discipled. We need to pray for prison fellowship. We need to pray for these men that are going in and bringing the gospel to these areas. Who knows what can come out the other side? How many people looked on the Apostle Paul, that murderer of Christians, and never thought he would be able to write two-thirds of the New Testament? We need to believe that the gospel can redeem all situations. The man that is farthest from Christ today can be saved, can be redeemed. Think of the Amish community that lost their children. They didn't call out condemnation. They prayed for forgiveness for the attacker. We need to make sure that we keep this in mind. This gospel needs to go forward into all these places. And we don't sit by idly and watch the world fall apart. We have more ammunition than the government ever could in the gospel. Amen? Amen. He's going to redeem everything. He's going to redeem the world. The entire world is going to hear this message. And he is going to redeem all. And the final enemy that must be put to sleep is death. And death is going to die its death. It's going to be done. No more saying goodbye to loved ones. Because Christ is going to win. He's going to win. Second Peter talks about these same people. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And what's the ammunition that we have against this? Apologetics and evangelism. We have the gospel. We have the ability to actually take the gospel into these places and use it for combat. We have the Bible in front of us. We have God's commands. We can actually take this message into the world and fight against this evil and this wickedness. And God says that his word will not return to him how? Void. It's going to accomplish exactly what he says it's going to. And that's our mission that's our mission. And we need to be vigilant. Why? Because in the church today, on your television screen today, in the church, we have wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ warned us about these people. 
people that are inwardly ravaging, ravenous wolves. They come in and they look like they're part of us, and they're not. They're spreading a false gospel. They're spreading a false ideology, and they need to be shut down. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. The gospel is going to win. The gospel is going to win. It's winning today. It's winning in places where you and I can't even see it's winning. It's going to win. Christ has not been defeated. Amen? He has victory, and we share in the victory. And if we're, as we're called to combat, you need to remember whose side you're on. It seems like the world is creeping in, and things are getting darker and darker, and believe me, I agree with you. We hear that consenting adults can do this to one another. When we hear that, uh, that, that marriage is, is, is gone and we hear that babies are being destroyed and we hear that uh, just this foolishness is being propagated and we hear all these silly ideas, it makes someone want to crawl into a hole, which is exactly what some public preachers are saying we should do today. Nothing left for us to do but await for his second coming. Wrong. Show me chapter and verse. You won't find it. Because we are supposed to go to war. And what's the promise that he gives us? Let me read it to you from Matthew chapter 28 in that beautiful, great commission. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It says this. I am with you. How long? Always. I am with you always to the end of the age. We're afraid of the Great Commission, which is why we don't do apologetics, which is why we don't do evangelism. We get frustrated. Sometimes in conversations, we don't have the right words. We don't know which chapter to go to. We don't know which verses we have memorized that would be applicable to this situation. We really don't know how to fight. So instead, sometimes we get angry and the conversation ends. Sometimes we just back down. But as we're told to do this, Christ says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and behold, this is the stop point of the message. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you bow your heads with me and, and pray this morning? Heavenly Father, your grace and your mercy are astounding. We think of how dark times are. We think of how hard it is to have the courage to fight. We think of all of the things that seem to be against us today and seem to be against the church, and we're nervous and we don't know what to do. Giving money to missionaries... And we know you've called us to do this. And sometimes it just ends there for us. Meanwhile, Father, in our area, there are 20,000 people 
and very few of them sitting in a service this morning. So God, our mission field is broad and it's right outside these doors. Help us to be vigilant in keeping nonsense out of this place. And if a false teaching or false doctrine is brought up, even if it's from my lips, give these people boldness enough to say something to me. And if it comes from someone else, give us boldness enough to say something to them. Help us to snuff out the wolf. Help us to get rid of any impurity. Help us to make sure that we do not fall into false teaching. We don't lead others astray also. Help us to be vigilant about reading your word, studying your word. Help us to be vigilant about taking the gospel into every area of life. And Lord, help us to focus truly on the mission that you've given us in every single moment. Would you give us your grace and your mercy? In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.